Grace and mercy and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. A young pastor was faced with his first wedding ceremony. He wasn't really sure what to do, so he decided to counsel with an older preacher. The more experienced preacher uh, told the young man everything he needed to know about doing a perfect wedding ceremony. But he said, I have one little suggestion to you. Should you ever forget what it is that you're supposed to say, just quote scripture. So the young pastor did a great job in his first wedding until he pronounced the couple husband and wife. And at that point, his mind went totally blank. But then he remembered the advice of the older pastor, so he quoted the only Bible passage that came to mind. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, unfortunately, his mistaken words are all too often true. Many couples do enter marriage knowing not what they do. In fact, I would suggest to you that of the over 100 or so marriages that I have been a part of, many of them come having any knowledge of how to have a successful marriage. In fact, most of them come only wanting to have a happy marriage, and some of them a happy marriage at least until that one ends and the next one comes around. But I'm going to tell you, friends, that there is a big difference between just being married and having a happy marriage, and more importantly, having a successful marriage. This morning, I'm going to share with you from God's Word on the subject of having a successful marriage, some biblical principles. And I'm going to start with the passage you see on the top of your message outline from Luke 16, verses 16 to 18. It may seem like a strange verse to use to talk about marriage. It says, The law and the prophets were proclaimed unto John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, and the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now in these verses, what's happening here is that Jesus is contrasting people's reaction to hearing the gospel and the law. From the days of John the Baptist, the people were hearing more about the good news. They were hearing about forgiveness of sins, and they were hearing about grace instead of the Old Testament law that they'd been used to for years. In fact, people really enjoyed this new message because Jesus has said people are trying to force their way into it. In other words, they were responding to the preaching of the good news about the same way we would if a millionaire stood on the street corner and was handing out free money. I mean, they were excited about this, and they diligently pursued this wonderful offer of grace and forgiveness. Now, that's a great response. But Jesus did not want the people to think that the teachings about grace and forgiveness set aside the principles and the commands anymore. That's why Jesus said here in the text, It's easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. God says, friends, I'm serious about the law, the Old Testament. I'm serious about the gospel. Maybe that's the New Testament. I'm serious about all of my word, 
and maybe you guys ought to be serious too. Now you're probably asking yourself already, what does this have to do with a successful marriage? Well, I'll tell you, one way, in one area where people were either ignoring or disobeying or compromising God's word in the days of Jesus was in regard to marriage. Divorce and cheating, surprisingly, were running about as rampant in the days of Jesus as it does in our own day. So Jesus came to remind them what God's word had to say. And in verse 18, he says it pretty loud and he says it pretty clear. He says, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, and the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. See, he wanted people to know two things. One, that divorce is still divorce, and in most cases, it's still wrong. And two, that adultery is adultery in spite of the fact that people were only wanted to hear the good news. Now, friends, I'm here this morning to say that you and I, we too, need to take God's word seriously, and we can't pick and choose which part of God's word that we're going to hold close to us. It means we need to take a serious look at what God says about marriage. Now, what does it say about building a successful marriage? Well, before I share the four keys with you this morning, I want to just define for you what I mean by having a successful marriage. Now, notice I did not say four keys to a happy marriage. And the reason I didn't use happy was because a happy marriage depends upon your own personal desires and and it makes that satisfaction your goal. I mean, yeah, I'd like to have a happy marriage because that makes me feel good. I'm sure my wife would like to have a happy marriage because that would make her feel good. But understand something, folks, we don't always feel good every day. A successful marriage, on the other hand, at least from a Christian's point of view, means a marriage that doesn't please us, but it's a marriage that pleases God. It is one that is lived in accordance, not with our principles, but in accordance with God's clear principles in his word. Now, these marriages, these, quote, successful God-honoring marriages, are often the happiest marriages, too, but that's still not the goal of marriage. Rather, it is the result of building your marriage on biblical principles. Now, with that note of explanation, let me give you the four keys that God's Word talks about in regard to a successful marriage. Here's the first one. A successful marriage is committed to a permanent relationship. It's committed to a permanent relationship. See, God's plan for marriage is that it be literally till death do us part. It is a lifelong deal. Jesus talks about this in Luke 16, 18, when he rebukes people who kind of give in to easy divorces. Jesus said, friends, look, if you get divorced for unbiblical reasons and you remarry, you're breaking your vows and you're committing adultery. And also, if you marry somebody who's divorced for unbiblical reasons, you're committing adultery because in God's eyes, that person is still married. Now, I do need to point out that the Bible does make exceptions, and it does allow for divorce in two cases. Scripture is pretty clear about that. Divorce, is there's an exception in the cases of unfaithfulness when one party or the other is unfaithful to the other, and it also does allow for divorce when it comes to abandonment. Now, I know some of you are saying, wow, those are pretty uncompromising standards. Yeah, they are. What are you trying to say? 
I mean, this is what God says, but they're God's standards, and it's important that we take them seriously and understand that when you decide to marry somebody, you are committing to a permanent relationship. Now, I know that the society that you and I live in today does not think of divorce as any big deal. The question is, what does God think about it? I thought about asking you, what do you think about divorce? I was going to say, who cares what you think? <laughs> Let's see what God has to say. Well, if you look at Malachi 2, it's a long section here, but it's important. He's telling people, he said, understand something you do. You flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. And you ask, why? He said, I'm going to tell you why. It's because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the Lord made them one in flesh and in spirit? They are his. And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. Or look at this next line. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel, and I hate man's covering himself with violence as well as with his garment, says the Lord Almighty. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. And again, probably some of you who heard that are saying, that's pretty heavy stuff. God obviously takes divorce a lot more seriously than we do. But some of you may say, well, hold it. That's Old Testament scripture. Surely God changed his mind in the New Testament, right? In fact, there were people when they heard Jesus say this in Luke, they cornered him after a while and they said, okay, Jesus, we heard you quoting the Old Testament, uh, but you've kind of changed your mind, haven't you? Let me read this next section of scripture. I'm going to read this from the message translation, Mark chapter 10. It says, from there... He went to the area of Judea across the Jordan. A crowd of people, as was so often the case, went along and he, as he so often did, taught them. Pharisees came up intending to give him a hard time. They asked, is it legal for a man to divorce his wife? Jesus said, what did Moses command? They answered, Moses gave permission to fill out a certificate of dismissal and divorce her. Jesus said, Moses wrote this command only as a concession to your hard-hearted ways. In the original creation, God made male and female to be together. Because of this, a man leaves father and mother, and in marriage he becomes one flesh with a woman, no longer one individual, but forming a new unity, because God created this organic union of the two sexes. By the way, I should stop there. It's between the two sexes. Remember, it was Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve so that no one should desecrate his art by cutting them apart. When they were back home, notice, the disciples brought it up again. I mean, they didn't like that tough teaching. Jesus gave it to them straight. A man who divorces his wife so he can marry someone else commits adultery against her, and a woman who divorces her husband so she can marry someone else commits adultery. I don't know. I don't think you can miss the intent of God's words there, can you? Marriage is a permanent relationship. Divorce is not an option with the exception of the cases of unfaithfulness or abandonment. Friday night, 
Nancy and I entertained a young couple. They were passing through. They stopped to see us. I'm going to be doing their marriage this coming May. On the same weekend, I'm doing the marriage of another young couple back in Illinois. I took a lot of information down about them, where they lived and how long they've known each other and how they met and all kinds of stuff like that. And we were all done. I said, I have a couple of questions for you. I want you to look at each other. Look each other in the eye, and I want you to answer these questions. Do you love each other? Oh, they just beam. <laughs> oh, yeah, we love each other. Ah, it made me feel good. I said, do you like each other? And they both looked back. They said, what do you mean? We said we loved each other. I said, I understand it. But do you like each other? That's important, too. They looked back. They said, yeah, we like each other. I said, good for you. Third question. Can you say to one another right now, looking each other in the eye, that divorce will never be an option in this marriage? And you know, tears came to both of those young people, and they said to each other, it will never be an option. We have already talked about it. It's at that point that I felt even better about doing this wedding than I had before. The question is, some of you who are sitting out there may wonder, what if you've already been divorced? What if you remarried for the wrong reason? What should you do? Well, friends, I'll tell you, you cannot change the past. So you ought to respond to that sin as you would to any other sin. What do you do with any other sin? You confess it. You repent of it. You generally commit your current or perhaps future marriage as permanent. In other words, do as Jesus said to that woman who was caught in adultery. He said what? Go and sin no more. So that very first key to a successful marriage is to be committed to a permanent relationship. Now, how does that make it successful? Let me give you a couple of things. I think, first of all, if divorce is not an option, you're much less likely to get married without giving it some real thought and understanding. Let me just give you an example. Let's suppose that uh, the new president, whoever he may be, passes a law in America that you can only buy one car in your entire lifetime. And you can never decide after that that this wasn't the car for you. You could never trade that car in. You could never get a newer model. You could never junk it because it cost too much or it broke down too often. Don't you think you'd be pretty careful which car you picked out? Does that sound a little bit like marriage? Wouldn't you be a little bit more careful if you knew that's the one that was going to be the one forever? I think the second thing, if divorce is never an option, then you're, you're probably more likely to work hard at that marriage than you would if you knew, hey, easy come, easy go. You need to work at it, by the way, because marriage, I don't know if I'm telling you any secret here, marriage isn't easy. And I'm speaking from one who has 44 years of experience, folks. It's not easy. Someone one time said marriage is a lot like twirling a baton or turning handsprings or eating with chopsticks. It looks easy until you try it. See, the only way that a couple will get beyond the struggles and the difficulties of marriage starts with being committed to a permanent relationship. Otherwise, they're always going to look for the easy way out. A strong marriage is not 
necessarily built on compatibility. It's built on a commitment to a God-pleasing, Christ-honoring, lasting relationship. I've learned, as many of you have learned, who've been married a long time, guess what? Your marriage partner over the years is going to change physically and emotionally, financially, sometimes even personality-wise. You're going to need to deal with sickness. You're going to need to deal with argument and laziness and financial crises and intrusive in-laws and bad and even sinful habits. So you really need to be ready to be committed. Now, in saying all of this, I don't want any of you to think that marriage is a bad thing. Because it's not. It's not a bad thing. I mean, it's something God himself created. It is a wonderful thing, but it takes real, God-honoring, Christ-exalting commitment. Here's the second thing about a successful marriage. It's committed to a faithful relationship. And believe me, there's something different between a faithful relationship and just being committed to it. What I mean by this is that you will never cheat on your spouse. You will have no intimate relationships with anyone else ever, never, ever, never, ever. The Bible says any intimate relationship outside of a marriage other than the one you're married to is called what? It's called adultery. And guess what? The Bible's got a lot to say about that subject too. It's certainly different from what we see portrayed in our world today, right? I mean, the world, especially media today, would portray media uh, would portray adultery as either kind of harmless or even great fun, provided the other person never finds out. This is kind of a political aside, but I find it interesting that in 2008, our culture today is vastly more upset about the downturn of our economy than it was a number of years ago when a president engaged in adulterous behavior in the White House. You see, friends, adultery is just no big deal to this world, most of this world. Yet in spite of how the rest of this world feels, that's not how God feels. Well, look at some of these passages. Uh, the Sixth Commandment, Exodus 20, you shall not commit adultery. This might scare some of you. You know that in Old Testament times, the punishment for committing adultery was the exact same punishment as for committing uh, intentional murder. You were stoned to death. That was the punishment. King David, when he was found to have committed adultery with Bathsheba, he confessed that sin. He repented of that sin, but he still paid the consequences. I don't know if you know what happened. He commits adultery with Bathsheba, and that child from that union died in spite of all the prayers that David prayed. In addition, one of his sons came and took his kingdom by force and then slept with David's wives in public on a rooftop just to humiliate him. See, adultery is a serious offense, not in the world's eyes, but in God's eyes. And some of you are saying, well, that's the Old Testament again. Okay, New Testament, Hebrews 13. Marriage should be honored by all the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. I don't know if you all listen to Paul Harvey. I like Paul Harvey. I even like Paul Harvey Jr. Uh, Paul Harvey used to hawk, he still hawks a lot of products. <laughs> One of them was something called J.B. Weld. I've never seen it, I've never bought it, but J.B. Weld con consisted of two tubes of stuff. If you squeeze out a little bit out of each and let them sat sit there, absolutely nothing happens. But if you take those two tubes of stuff and you mix them together, 
they hold anything together. They could bond metal or leather or plastic together. Apart, they do nothing. Together, they're really very strong. It's probably got something to do with some chemical reaction when you mix those, mix those two strips of stuff. Now, I think marriage is the same way. Intimate relations in a marriage is kind of like a chemical reaction that allows that stuff of each individual person to become one durable substance. That's the oneness that God speaks of. It's emotional, it's spiritual, it's psychological. It sets the relationship, if you will, between husband and wife. But when something happens outside, it breaks the bonds of marriage. And even though, although it's not impossible, very few marriages fully recover from infidelity. A commitment, lifelong, faithful. Here's the third one. Committed to a cooperative relationship. Now I say cooperative because uh, it, I mean being a team player. Cooperation means that each person, both the husband and the wife, are willing and committed to fulfilling their God-given roles and their God-given responsibilities within a marriage. Now, it's such a beautiful day yesterday, I drove all the way to Arkadelphia. I went to Arkadelphia just to sit in the sun, to watch Washita Baptist, the Tigers, or I should say Taggers, I'm from Texarkana, Taggers, to play the South or Southern Arkansas Mule Riders in football. I noticed something. Every time Washita Baptist came out on the field offensively, they only had one quarterback. And whenever, whenever Southern Arkansas came out on the field, they only had one quarterback. That's just the way it works in a team, isn't it? Each team needs to fulfill whatever position, whatever role the coach assigns them in order to be successful. Same way. Marriage works the same way. Who's the head coach? It's Jesus Christ. He assigns each of us different roles and different responsibilities. Now, what are they? Now, this is a whole other sermon. Let me whip through. I got them all written out for you on your message outline, but here's a few. Let me give you three things. This is husbands. Let me, I'm talking to you or potential husbands or men or anybody you're ever going to get advice to. Number one, you are to love your wives even as Christ loved the church. It's just that simple. Ephesians 5. It means we need to be willing, guys, to sacrifice whatever is necessary to meet the needs of our wife. It also means we are to be considerate as we live with them, treat them with respect. That's First Peter. In other words, you're not some sort of a step and fetch, you know, some sort of a self-seeking dictator who just flops on the couch and says, get me a beer. You don't make demands on your wife. Instead, you treat your wife as a gift from God. When I do weddings, I often have the couple turn and look at each other. And I tell them, as you look at each other, understand this, that before you were ever born, God chose this woman to be your wife. She is, this woman is God's gift to you. And, and as you, you look, this man is God's gift to you. And as important as that gift is, don't ever lose sight of the giver of that great and wonderful gift. Treat them with respect. Women, or husbands are also supposed to be gentle with their wives. I heard it put this way. Uh, don't make your wife cry unless there are tears of joy. Maybe that's what Colossians talks about. But women, you're not left off the hook either, by the way. Women are to be supportive of their husbands. That's what the Bible says. That's why God created women in the first place, whether you like it or not. 
said, I'm going to create a helpmeet for Adam. That means she was there to help him, to support him. And a husband needs to know that his wife will support him no matter what. Not, not criticizing, I'm not saying not offering some useful criticism, but not always criticizing and not always undermining. A woman also is to be submissive. And guess what? A lot of women don't like that word. I've had a few suggest we could take it out of the wedding ceremony. And I said, we take it out of the wedding ceremony, you're taking me out of the wedding ceremony. Because I'm not going to sacrifice on what God's word says. Submissive, submission, it's no big deal. I always tell guys, uh, you know, if, if your husband loves you the way Christ loves the church, you're going to willingly be submissive. And guess what? If your wife is submissive to you, you're going to love her the way Christ loved the church. Submission just means letting your husband have that leadership position that God has assigned him in the marriage. I mean, the coach decides that the husband is to be the spiritual leader. And I'll tell you what, guys, if you don't do your job, you'll deal with the head coach someday. Three things that are relatively important. I want to get to the fourth one, which is the most important. A successful marriage is committed to a Christ-centered relationship. A Christ-centered relationship. You learn some of the best lessons in Sunday school here. The little kid sat through the Sunday school class and he heard this story about how Jesus went to a wedding and how Jesus turned water into wine. When he got home, his dad said, so what did that story teach you? The little boy thought about it for a moment. He said, well, seems to me if you're going to have a wedding, you better make sure Jesus shows up. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. If you're going to have a wedding, make sure Jesus is there. But let's take it even a step further. Make sure Jesus is there for the entire marriage. When Jesus talked about building lives, we talk about individual lives. But we can also say that when Jesus was talking about building marriages or building churches or even building nations, he said it's a lot like people who build houses. If you build a house on a sandy foundation. When the storms of life come, it's not going to withstand it. I mean, I wondered why when the straight line winds come through Texarkana, so many trees just fall over. You only need to walk through my yard to find out because hardly any of the roots of the trees go down very far. The soil's not good enough to hold them up in the time of a storm. But Jesus said if you build your life, if you build your marriage, if you build your church, if you build your nation on solid rock, you know, the foundation of, uh, of Scripture on Christ being the cornerstone, when the storms of life come, your house, your life, your church, your nation will stand. If you build your marriage with Jesus as the focal point, it too will endure the storms of life. Without a real sincere relationship with Jesus, your marriage will not be fully successful and it may not even last. The reason is because without Jesus, we are blind to our own faults. Without Jesus, we are unable to change any of our behavior. Without Jesus, we are unwilling to forgive the faults of other people. I mean, how can a marriage endure and prosper in those kind of circumstances? The answer is, it can't. That's why we need to learn to stand close to Jesus.
Now, those are human marriages, but I need to take it another step further. When we close today, we are going to say something to this effect, that we are the body of Christ known as First Lutheran Church. Now, we use that term, the body of Christ, with Christ being the head and us being the part, but we are also known as the bride of Christ. This church is the bride of Christ. The same things I've already said before about human marriages are true of a church marriage. We need to commit ourselves to a lasting relationship. We need to build this church solidly on something that's going to last forever, and we're going to say, man, come hell or high water, you're not moving us off of this. I often tell people there are about eight core beliefs that you will never, ever budge me off of. And I'd be bold enough to tell you that as long as I am serving as your pastor, you will never, ever budge me off of these beliefs. Because I am full out, full blown, committed to being with Christ forever, and that means honoring his word and everything that's in it. We need to be faithful, too. We need to be faithful in our commitment to be in worship. Not just kind of dabbling in worship, but being faithful in worship. Be faithful in the study of our word, being faithful in our prayer life. Being faithful in loving and forgiving one another and going the extra mile to offer forgiveness and sometimes go and receive and beg for forgiveness from one another. To be faithful in practicing what God has taught us to do and how God has taught us to be. We need to also commit to a cooperative relationship. We're all in this together. We're all in this together. I am not the head of this church. The Board of Elders is not the head of this church. Church Council is not the head of this church. LWML isn't the head of the church. Alder Guild, you're not even head of the church. Christ is the head of the church. We are the bride of Christ, and we willingly submit to that leadership, to cooperate. And we commit to always putting Jesus first in all that we do. For without Jesus, where are we going to be? I know a lot of people who profess to be very happy. But if you begin to dig a little bit deeper and you dig under the skin, you'll find a lot of unhappy people out in this world. Why? They just don't know who Jesus is. And so they wander around in this life like a bunch of blind people. They wander around with this attitude of, why, does, why do bad things always happen to me? Why does nothing seem to ever go right for me? Well, the answer always comes down to one simple little word, J-E-S-U-S. I pray that we all have God-honoring, Christ-centered, biblically-based relationships, whether they're marriages, whether they're friendships, whether they're in the church or whether they are in a nation. May God bless us to that end. In Jesus' name, amen.